Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Growing up in a materialistic culture, being taught to be all that you can be actually produces obstacles to the path to enlightenment. The definition of neurotic is acting in a way that is inappropriate according to reality. The Buddha teaches that this self into whose pockets you are putting things is an erroneous concept. Instead, Jetsama Akon Lamo advises how, through the practice of devotion on the Vajrayana path, one can stop developing the ego through all this collecting. Discriminating between what is ordinary and what is precious, one can look at one's teacher and say, this is the face of truth, and thereby enter the door to liberation. So I will say that uh, today, our teaching has to do with devotion, but particularly a special angle on devotion, a special way to understand devotion that may help Westerners, particularly, because of the way that we think. One of the wonderful opportunities that I have had is the opportunity to explain Dharma, which is which was made or uh, which which was 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 brought forth forth into the world in the East and was brought forth to Easterners, <coughs> and so it particularly seems to have uh, a connection with the way that Easterners think, and sometimes. In terms of the way Westerners think, there needs to be a little bit of translation. So I've found that I've had the opportunity to help with that translation just a little bit. The teaching is the same, but perhaps the method, the way of teaching, the way of presenting, might be slightly different in order to help Westerners over certain kinds of hurdles that they may have. One, for instance, is that generally when one comes to the path, one of the first teachings that we receive is the teaching on devotion, simply because in the branch of Buddhism called Vajrayana or Tantrayana, devotion is essential. It it is a fundamental point. It is as essential as any other point in Dharma. It is extremely emphasized, and that emphasis connects with the fact that Vajrayana or Tantrayana is specifically designed for this time, this age, this age uh, called Kali Yuga, when, when spiritual, spiritual uh, content, spiritual potency is beginning to decline in the world. It seems as though spirituality is more and more spoken of, but in fact, this is the time when false prophets, false spirituality, and, um, and very uh, insipid kinds of spiritual practice have appeared. Uh, much talk about practice are much talk about spirituality, much talk about such things, and yet the practice is insipid and, and has no good result. Uh, the practice uh, in this day and age often does not arise from the mind of enlightenment and therefore cannot result in enlightenment. So this particular branch of Buddhism is designed for this time in that it does absolutely arise from the mind of enlightenment, but it is geared in a certain way to satisfy certain kinds of trends and needs. 
In Vajrayana also, uh, it is the quickest, quickest method. It's considered that in Vajrayana, if one were to practice and really deepen within the practice, one could, could accomplish enlightenment within one li- lifetime. Or if not within one lifetime, then certainly during the period following this present lifetime, called the bardo or intermediate state. In Vajrayana are the practices, the main practices, in which a student actually practices how to die. An extremely potent, extremely efficient, and extremely important kind of practice. Uh, the student is given the method, is given the, 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 the method to, uh, to understand and to meet the moment of death with eyes open, in a sense. And is also given the method to clear the central channel and the psychic winds in order to prepare for the time of death. So that when death comes, we are not blocked by blockages or kinks within our own inner psychic channels. This practice is called poa, and it's one of the main practices in Dharma, in uh, Vajrayana, Vajrayana branch, branch of Dharma. So being as though this particular kind of Dharma is geared toward this time of the generation, it has particular and peculiar characteristics, and again, one of the main ones is the strong and fervent emphasis on devotion. Now, normally when devotion, even in the Vajrayana path, is taught to an Easterner, Easterners, remember, have a different cultural background. If you were a Tibetan, or perhaps even an Indian uh, coming from India, or perhaps uh, an Asian coming from a Buddhist country, your background thinking, your foundational thinking, would be quite different than what it is as a Westerner, as an American or, or European. Um, how can I describe the difference? Let me say that here in America, we have a certain idea that is a very extremely romanticized idea uh, because of the way our country came up, because of the way, really because of the way our country started, and because of the adventures that were had by people who came into our country from other places looking for a better life. There is an ideal that is romanticized here in America that is not so romanticized in other places. Particularly, it is not so romanticized in uh, more Eastern nations. And that idea is the idea of materialism and individual attainment, um, ambition. Ambition in the way that only Americans think about it. We, we, We cut our teeth on the idea that the most important thing in life is ambition, getting ahead, making a name for yourself, making money. Money is the big thing. Uh, in, in our culture, we are we're brought up, uh, and, and from a very young age, our parents give us, give us, and give us the skill to become an outstanding kind of person with and this is how you determine an outstanding kind of person. It has nothing to do with inner qualities. But parents are, are, are really geared toward educating their children to uh, becoming some profession that has a very high ceiling in terms of money-making. And that's the way I, I was told to be a success. Be a lawyer. Be a doctor. You know, even be a plumber, but be the kind of plumber that works a lot of overtime, makes all that extra money. 
The idea is to make you make yourself really comfortable and to have enough. And parents are spend more time gearing their their children towards the kind of academic advancement which will cause them to have uh, one of those piled higher and deeper degrees, so that you can make lots of money more than the guy next to you who only has the much ado about something a degree. Imagine. <laughs> So anyway, that's the kind of education that we receive, and we internalize the idea, and it's a prejudice. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's, an, it's a work ethic that we have that is intimately connected with materialism, and, and we believe that that's how we have to do or to be in order to make it. So we romanticize that idea, and when we fantasize as children about what it is to grow up, we really fantasize about things we can have. We fantasize about having our own car and driving it around and having it be red or something really wonderful like that. And we have this idea of uh, freedoms that we're going to have, but they're, but they're material freedoms. Things that we're going to do, vacations that we're going to take, uh, power that we're going to have in a worldly way. These are the ideas that we go for, and we romanticize them and we prepare ourselves for them. So that when ideas connected with dharma, come to our minds, there is a part of our mind that accepts it, knows that we are unhappy, gets that there is suffering, and sees that something must be done and wishes, and, and if we have the karma for it, hungers and thirsts for spiritual development. But there is also a part of our mind, how, lo how loud that voice is, how conscious it is, or how unconscious it is, one can never say. But in each of us we have, as Westerners, a voice that is telling us that we are foolish to renounce cyclic existence, that we are foolish to renounce the world, that we are foolish to renounce all of this romanticized programming about what it takes to be a success. And the idea that we have is that we can somehow divide our lives. We can be spiritual, but we can also worship Rome, to use an idea from another religion. And our hearts and our minds are divided. So it's very difficult for us when we are told to practice devotion, we compartmentalize that idea. And we think that it enters into this phase of our lives, but not the other phase of our lives. And that it really has nothing to do with most of what we do. And therein, we develop for ourselves yet another neuroses. Because when your mind is divided against itself, that, that's neuroses. You have conflicting ideas, conflicting goals. You can't satisfy both of them. You're literally bound through, through these different kinds of programmings that we have had. Now, for an Easterner, they have some of the same. It's not like, uh, particularly nowadays, uh, Western and Eastern influences have begun to merge. But there was a time, and particularly in the land of Tibet, when, uh, when parents thought of the highest goal for their child was to be a monk or a nun. And the child who was really to be the, 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 the treasured one, the one who held the blessings of the family, the one who was and became and who held the, 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 the storehouse of treasure for the family was not the materialist. It was the spiritual one, the child that became the monk or the nun. That was the one that held the treasure for the family. 
And often the family would support the child, even as he was a grown man or she was a grown woman, supporting them in their practice. And often the family would make most of their material gain directed toward the monastery uh, that was helping their child to move closer to enlightenment. They felt a natural kind of inclination and gratitude towards the monastery that was helping their child move closer to enlightenment. Not nowadays. I remember when my monks and nuns, they're mine, I own them. Sorry. <laughs> I actually made that mistake one day and they all said, no, no, it's true, really. <laughs> so apparently it is. Uh, I know that uh, my monks and nuns, when they became ordained, uh, sat there and practically practiced in front of a mirror how they wanted to tell their parents. These people had to suffer in order to convince their parents that they weren't crazy or obsessed or um, that their brains had been altered. They hadn't had frontal lobotomies or um, that they were taken over by a cult or something like that. So they had a very difficult time with that. Whereas, again, in Tibet, if the child has any such inclination... The parents are on their knees thanking Guru Rinpoche that such a child came to them. They have, because they know that it, that it, that it, it absolutely establishes the whole family as strongly connected with Dharma. That anyone who takes robes actually benefits their entire family because their family was instrumental in bringing them into the world. So these are different ideas, and you can see from that how fundamentally different our thinking is as a materialistic society and a society that is democratic and bent on the idea of individual achievement, particularly when that individual achievement is material. Now, I consider myself to have... I was raised as a worldly woman, and I still consider myself to be a worldly woman. That's an odd thing for a Lama to say, because I feel that it is possible to be a worldly person. That means you know how to catch a taxi, you can get on the bus, you can drive a car, you can make a living, you can take care of your people, they won't starve, your family won't starve. Uh, you can learn how to cook, you can learn how to ice skate, if you want to do that. Um, <laughs> there are so many different things that you can do in a participatory way that are in the world and still have your mind and your heart completely abandoning the world, in that the world has no hook for you. It's not that you become a blithering idiot. Suddenly, uh, upon uh, uh, having some sort of spiritual connection, upon wishing to take on a spiritual life, suddenly uh, your eyes mysteriously roll ever skyward, and you are no longer able to look normally the way other people do. You're doing this all the time. <laughs> Wearing white, of course. Well, maroon. <laughs> and the idea is that suddenly you can't do anything. You're just kind of floppy. Just can't pull it together. Just can't make yourself do what you need to do. That isn't true. I think it's possible to be absolutely awake and alive and enthusiastic in the world. It is possible to be connected with the world. It is possible to be sophisticated, savvy, smart, look normal. All of these things are possible. And yet at the same time, it is possible to practice dharma and have dharma be absolutely enthroned on your heart in such a way as to be indistinguishable from your mind. 
that wherever you go, Dharma is. I know that that is possible. No matter how you project it into the world, under what conditions, that is possible. But as Westerners that are raised in a materialistic society, we do not see the connection. Either you are applying yourself towards those goals that we were instructed to apply ourselves towards, and those goals are, of course, that individual romantic achievement. Or we are doing some kind of flaky spiritual thing. And that's the idea that we have, that it's either one or the other. So Westerners have to be taught a little differently when it comes to devotion, particularly. <coughs> and here's why. Let me describe something to you. Most commonly, when a Western comes to the, Westerner comes to the path and begins to romance the path and understand the path and try to see what it is, try to enter onto the path, Westerners come to the path with particular ideas. They see the path as being something that one can collect, or dharma, as being one, something that one can collect materially, that one can establish as a material possession. That's the idea. The idea is to walk into dharma and say, well, let's see, um, I am over here, a scientist. I'm a scientist. And I have my degree, and I have my scientific career, and I have all the things that I have done. I have written this paper and that paper, and I have climbed, and also I'm very athletic, I have climbed this mountain, we have a list of them, this mountain and that mountain, and I have done this incredible, incredibly athletic, wonderful thing, and I have done another incredibly athletic, wonderful thing. We have our list here. Then you say, and also... I have gone to a Buddhist temple, that one in Poolsville, the one that's really exotic looking and very colorful, and has crystals. And, um, and the one where it's taught by that, uh, that lady from Brooklyn. It's really different, very unique there. So then I went to this, t this Dharma temple, and now I have this. I have this teaching, and I have that teaching, and I have sat with the monks and nuns, and I have prayed with the crystals, and I have joined the prayer chart, I didn't know what to do when I was in there, but I joined the prayer chart. And, um, and I, did, I walked around a stupa and said prayers, prayers for the world. And that, so I have my scientific career, and I have my athletic achievements, and I'm also a Dharma person, very spiritual. I am spiritual, you know. And um, <laughs> I've also read a lot of Dharma books, and I have them written down because you'd want to know that, really. <laughs> And really, Westerners kind of approach it with that kind of idea. We're collecting. We are materialists from the bone. We are materialists because of the way that we were raised. In terms of devotion, what happens is we collect teachers. And there are many Dharma practitioners, up in, and this is a, this is a Western phenomena, pretty much uniquely. Uh, that, um, you know, go around collecting teachers uh, by rank. You know, they want the biggest teachers, one with the best names. You've got to have the best, you know. Uh, and, and many Westerners will say, um, well, my real root guru is the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama, you know. 
because uh, I, I've read all of his books. And um, once I saw him speak, and we had a very meaningful eye contact, and in that moment, I know that he accepted me as his own. I know that. And I have heard this. I, have ble- I swear to you, I have heard this. I have heard this more times than I have fingers and toes, that kind of thing. And also, uh, you know, we will collect all the biggest lamas and all the biggest names and all the best robes. And the teachings, that's another thing with the teachings. We go from place to place trying to get all the teachings. We have sat through Japanese tea ceremony. I have done that. I have. It's on this list. And, um, you know, and then I've been to India and I've been to Nepal and I have trekked. I have trekked. <laughs> so, uh, you, and then when they come to a Dharma center, and the, the instinct, instead of deepening on the path, instead of saying, all right, I understand the faults of cyclic existence, and I wish to create my life as a vehicle to benefit sentient beings and to achieve enlightenment, and I consider these two goals to be inseparable from one another. That would be the proper way to enter onto the path. But no, we don't do that. Instead, we have this idea of of collecting something. And they approach the teacher by saying, they sort of, it's almost like um, they size up the teacher as though they were buying beef. Now, that's the truth. They size up the teacher as though they were buying beef. You know, uh, on the foot, on the hoof, how much does it weigh? And the, and the bigger the name, the bigger the title, the bigger the cow. So you want to get the most for your money. You want to be sure that you have the biggest cow. And the idea is to... to the, the student in, in this particular circumstance never examines their own mind, never honestly goes within, never uses self-honesty, never enters onto the path saying, I'm here to change. Instead, they enter onto the path to increase the list so that they can report it to others. But more than that, they have this funny idea of developing themselves. Developing themselves to be a better person. And for for that kind of person, a better person would not necessarily be a person with better qualities. It would be a person with a better repertoire. You see? With a better list of wonderfulnesses about themselves. What is that thing that you give people when when you're applying for a job? Resume, Resume, yeah. Better resume. That's the idea. Not only athletic, but spiritual too. What a combo. (laughs) I mean, can you dig it? You know. And that's how a Westerner approaches the path. Now, with the teacher, here, here's what actually happens. When you're collecting teacher by the pound on the hoof, there is no relationship. There is no understanding. There, there, there is essentially nothing is happening there. Nothing is happening there. Because when one approaches Dharma, the most precious thing, the most, ex- the most important thing that needs to happen is that one needs to collect with, connect with one's own root guru. How you know your root guru is very simple. First of all, your root guru is practicing pure dharma, which arises from the mind of enlightenment and results in the mind of enlightenment. 
and your root guru shows you something about your own mind that you could not have known before. There is a recognition. There is a feeling that you have tasted your own mind. There is the awareness that, that you have come into something that has revealed a promise to you, something very profound. Upon meeting with the root guru, there are certain things that must happen, and they are different from the way Westerners approach Dharma. And I'll try to make the comparison so that the understanding will be complete. What should happen when you approach the path and a teacher appears before you when you are asking for a teacher, when you are ready for that, the teacher appears before you who, fa- who has all the qualifications, who teaches compassion, who teaches the nature of emptiness, who teaches the Buddhist teachings that arise from the mind of enlightenment, who teaches Dharma, and teaches it in a way that we can understand. And then words are spoken to you, or something occurs, a teaching is given, and suddenly you feel that you have tasted something of your own mind. Perhaps just a tiny bit. Sometimes it's hard to recognize, because it's just a tiny little bit. You almost miss the taste on your tongue. Our tongues are used to McDonald's. We're used to coarser stuff than this. But many students have had this experience. If their karma warrants it, they come to the path, they see the teacher, and suddenly something is different. Something is different. When that happens, the student should have the idea that now change is going to occur. Why would you come to the path if you did not desire change? You come to the path because you wish to achieve enlightenment. You come to the path learning (laughs) that cyclic existence is faulted, and you yourself have found that within the context of your life, psychic cyclic existence is nothing to trust. It is constantly changing, it is totally impermanent, and that you yourself have suffered within cyclic existence and suffered badly. And you know that old age, sickness, and death are given facts in cyclic existence. If you haven't suffered much yet, you know that you will. And so you come to the path dissatisfied with cyclic existence. That would be the best way to come to the path. Dissatisfied, thirsting, hungering. The way that Lord Buddha hungered for the truth. What is this? What is this? What is the truth here? And upon hungering for the truth, you come to the path thinking that naturally something has to change. We are searching. We are trying to understand. We are trying to change in order to achieve enlightenment. You have noticed, hopefully, that continuing on the path that you have always continued on, just the daily, day-to-day grind, the way you were taught, you are not breaking the bonds of cyclic existence. Continuing the way you were trained to continue in an ordinary way, you cannot solve the problems of old age, sickness, and death. You cannot prepare for your death. You cannot prepare for your next rebirth. Because there is nothing in ordinary cyclic existence that contains that kind of wisdom. And so you come to the path looking for that wisdom, looking for those answers, particularly looking for how to stop suffering. How to make a better world. 
Now, if that's the case, you must have the common sense to understand that you're coming to the path to change. But you see, Westerners come to the path unwilling to change, resistant to change, because they are collecting, because they are materialists. They want more in their repertoire, their repertoire, you see? That means that they want to stay exactly as they are, but have more in their pockets. That is not the same as spiritual practice. A person who comes to the path being willing to change and understanding that change is necessary will be riveted by the relationship between devotion and what they need to do. They will be riveted, literally, by the connection with their teacher. That will be the thing. That's the, that's the top of the wedding cake. Riveted by that. Here are the reasons why they should be riveted. Because once you meet your teacher, you have many different things that have entered into your life. First of all, Dharma has entered into your life. You cannot learn Dharma without a teacher, a teacher who is your root guru. You cannot sample many different places and many different teachers and learn. expect to learn any Dharma. You're going to learn how to sample if you do that. Remember, cause and effect are totally related. You can't get away from it. They are identical in their way. <coughs> so, when you come to the path, you should think, now I have the ability to receive Dharma. When the teacher gives you Dharma, as your root teacher, it will be in such a way that you can understand. It will be spoken in your language, your context, the way that your mind works, in a way that is familiar and acceptable for you. It will also give you a way to practice Dharma in your life and to apply it practically. It won't just be theoretical from a book. It will be potent to you. That's the way that Dharma should be presented by your root guru. You should be able to take it home and use it right away. Then you know that your mind is connecting, that you are really connecting. Also, when you meet the teacher, you should be increasing because the teacher will teach you about and will give you the ability to see the faults of cyclic existence. And you will come to understand that everything in cyclic existence is impermanent. And that in cyclic existence, suffering is inevitable for everyone. So you will begin to understand that. And beginning to understand that is like waking up from a drunk, drunken stupor. Stupor, stupor, stupor. Wish we could wake up from a stupor. (laughs) Waking up from a drunken stupor. And suddenly you sober up and you look around and you go, whoa, the house is on fire. I just didn't get this at all because I was kind of drunk with all the things that were in my head. Suddenly you wake up and you realize the house is on fire and there's one door. And the teacher is that door because the teacher gives the method, gives the practice, ripens and deepens the mind, without which... There is no leaving the burning room. There is no leaving samsara. So the teacher becomes like the door to liberation. The focus on the teacher then should be 
oh, how can I say it? Immediate, intimate, responsive, taken to heart, given the highest seat, profound. A Westerner must become what they were trained not to do. A Westerner must become trusting, receptive, accepting, spacious and peaceful in their minds. You were not taught to do that. You were taught to achieve and accomplish. You were given a work ethic. But you were not taught. You were taught to be, you were taught to be kind of cynical, really, and sophisticated in a certain way. But we think of it as sophisticated. Another culture might think of it as cynical. And so a Westerner has to find a way to come to the path and say, I'm prepared to change. I understand that change is what must happen here. If I am to express any wisdom or internalize any wisdom, and so they look at their teacher, they, they should uh, come to look at their teacher as being <coughs> that which is nowhere else in the world. They have to learn to distinguish between their ordinary material goals, the ordinary ambitions that we were raised with, distinguish between that and what is precious. How to distinguish between what is ordinary and what is precious? That is the most difficult thing for a Westerner. You see, Easterners have a certain ingrained prejudice from the way that they were raised and their parents were raised and their parents before them. There's a prejudice toward the spiritual. And we have a prejudice literally against it. A prejudice toward materialism. And for, you, can be, you can deny it all you want. It, it may be very unconscious in you. You may be thinking about spiritual things all the time, but the way that you approach the path is not quite, quite right due to that underlying prejudice. The correct thing to do when one meets the teacher is to kind of set aside all of the ordinary things that you have been told you must accomplish in order to be successful or sophisticated. All you have to do is set them aside for a little while. It's not that you have to abandon them completely just yet. Just set them aside for a little while. And look a little bit differently. Ask yourself, what are you here for? What have you actually come here for? And perhaps in asking yourself that, you might realize that there's really only one way to do that, and that is by receiving the teaching in a responsible way and having your mind deepened and softened and made broader, made more receptive, made more spacious, made more gentle through the ripening and potency of of the teaching given to you by the guru. 
you have to, when you come here, it should be in the posture of opening up, making the, the mind like a bowl, open and wide and receptive and perfectly clean with nothing poisoning it, no cracks in it, nothing that would cause the blessing to run away. The mind is like that. We have to do something that we were trained not to do as Westerners. We have to depend on our teachers. Isn't that scary? As Westerners, that we were told to do exactly the opposite. Don't depend on anyone. Get yourself ensconced in money and make yourself completely invulnerable through money. Wash away all your fears with money and material possessions. And, and, and be not afraid. Have a degree. <laughs> you know, these are the kinds of, really, these are the kinds of ambitions that we are taught. And there's nothing innately wrong with any of them, but when they become a substitute for a real spiritual life and for spiritual understanding, and when they cause you to walk around like this, or maybe this, or maybe this, not able to eat, take in the nourishment of the Dharma, then they are a problem. That's when they are a problem. How as Westerners can we overcome this? Even for, it's so difficult because even for some of my older students, they still have not overcome that bias towards materialism. Because they don't see that it's right there in front of them. They don't see that. They, they do not understand that the only important capability, the only important possession, the only important issue within one's life is what will benefit you not only through the course of this life, but also into the next life. Nothing having to do with materialism is going to affect you a bit in the next life. Not a bit. You can't take it with you. I'm telling you. You cannot take it with you. All that you will take with you is your prejudice or bias toward materialism, the habit of that. All that goes with you within your mind, all that, can, all that travels with you within the experience of continuum is that which, which, is, not, which is already within your mind stream. And that is the habitual tendency toward materialism and toward the, the clinging. You see, that clinging to self-ambition and sophistication associated with materialism only creates, uh, creates the, the increased clinging toward the idea of self-nature being inherently real. It continues our tendency to act inappropriately. The reason why it, is, it seems sensible to you to act as a materialist, to collect dharma, to divide your mind, to compartmentalize your life and, and your goals, the reason why that seems important to you is because you think that you are you and you're trying to develop yourself. The reason why the idea of developing yourself to be all that you can be, join the anyway. The reason why it is so important for you to develop yourself and be all that you can be is because you think that you are you and that is a mistaken idea. 
you're actually, to be all that you can be, to have that idea of collecting material life in your pocket, to walk away with big pockets, that idea is extremely neurotic. The definition of neurotic, you see, is acting against reality, acting in a way that is inappropriate according to reality. <coughs> the Buddha teaches that this self that you are putting things in the pockets of is an erroneous concept. Self-nature self is not inherently real. So you are kind of in a deluded state, in circles, very busy, being neurotic. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. That's absolutely true. Whereas, <coughs> if you knew something of your nature, if you knew something of your nature, you would think, if you could awaken a little bit to the feeling, to the understanding, to some awareness of, of the true nature, you would understand something of that nature that is free of contrivance, all of those materialistic contrivances, free of discrimination, the discrimination of having or not having, being or not being, full or empty, those kinds of discriminations. You would see that that nature is the primordial view, free of contrivance, free of discrimination, absolutely complete and yet unborn, spontaneously liberated and never built. That is the nature which cannot be contrived. You can't make one, and you can't take your nature away. You can't do it, you can't undo it. It simply is. But we are not awake to that nature. We are awake only to self, the reality of self. And so we act inappropriately, <coughs> fundamentally wrong on every account. Just circling in this delusion. Until we begin to truly awaken, and that is according to our tradition, to get to certain levels called boomies, and until one reaches to a certain level of realization where one actually does begin to have the spaciousness within the mind to awaken to the nature, to that primordial wisdom nature, we will always act appropriately, thinking that we are protecting ourselves, thinking that this is actually happening not understanding that we are hurting, hurting our ability to awaken. But we can't see our nature just yet. It takes practice to do that. And here's where the funny kind of catch-22 dichotomy weird situation comes into view. And that is that until we practice, and practice means in part... Practicing devotion. Until we actually begin to practice, we don't develop the spaciousness within our own mind to actually awaken as the Buddha awakened. We don't, we cannot give rise to the bodhicitta. We cannot give, which is the great compassion, which is uh, the, the very display of that primordial wisdom nature. The natural, spontaneous display of that primordial wisdom nature is compassion. We cannot give rise to that. We cannot know our nature. We cannot see our true face. And so, because this is Kali Yuga, a time when the very fabric of reality is drawn up and contracted like wool when it's washed in hot water, becomes very dense, drawn up and contracted. Because this is Kali Yuga, the method 
that we have to use in order to, to break that difficulty, that, that horrible dichotomy of needing to be able to see our nature but not being able to see our nature until we practice, needing to practice but not knowing why to practice until we see our nature, that horrible dilemma that we are in is solved through the practice of devotion. Because when we adhere to our own self-aggrandizement and we come in to collect dharma and to be more and to be cooler and to be broader and to be more better versed and to be hipper and to be more sophisticated and to be more spiritual and to be all those things, when we do that, we are actually adorning ourselves with our mother's clothing or father's clothing. We're playing house. We're little kids playing house. And little kids, when they're playing house, have you ever seen your children dress up? What do they do when they dress up? They look in the mirror and they see themselves, how they are in different ways, how they are differently. That's what we're doing when we collect Dharma like that. We're practicing being us differently. If, however, we were to come to the path see the faults of cyclic existence simply because that you'll learn that from your teacher. You don't have to know that before you come to the path. That's the first thing that you will learn. Just listen. Listen with your mind and your heart like this. Listen. Hear the faults of cyclic existence. Based on that, hear the truth. Upon hearing the truth, look to the door. If we are able to practice in that way by focusing on the teacher as though you were in a burning room and that teacher were the door. I mean, it's not like a personality cult. You're not going to stop and think, do I like the shape of the door? Is that a nicely carved sill? You know? Do I like the brass handle or would I prefer it in chrome? We don't think like that when the house is burning. You go out the door. So you should t- think of the teacher with the same kind of fervent regard. I... I I see, I've got, I'm out, I'm out of here. That kind of thing. Why does that work? And here's the secret. When we are collecting Dharma and playing with our egos and doing all those ego-clinging activities, we are simply developing our ego. It looks like spirituality, but friends, it isn't. And it will bring you a mixed result. Yes, you are connected to spirituality. Yes, you are a spiritual person. But if you're collecting it, if you're doing it in a material way, if you're making yourself better, making yourself more of what you are, you're missing the point and you will have mixed result. The result will be partially connection to Dharma and partially, partially a bigger <coughs> ego, ego within the spiritual playing ground. And that will ripen in the future in a way that you don't want. Very bad for you and very bad for others who are near you. But if you come to the path and you look at your teacher and you say, this is, this is the way the Buddha's teachers, teachings come to me. This is the hand of the Buddha. Therefore, this is the Buddha. These are the, this is the path of the Buddha. This is the teaching of the Buddha. Therefore, this is the Dharma. My teacher has given me the spiritual community that safely propagates dharma and helps me to stay on the path. 
Therefore, this is the Sangha. And you look at the teacher and you think, that is the doorway. And then you begin to hear the truth and you learn something of your own mind. Right now, today, you learned something of your own mind. You did. Try to taste it. Then you look at that and you learn something of your own mind and suddenly, hopefully you have the karma for this, the preciousness of that taste is delicious to your tongue, delicious, the preciousness of that. And then suddenly you look at that and you say, this is the face of truth. Now what has actually happened is that you have looked at yourself again, but differently. When you were collecting Dharma, you looked at yourself to see how much you could be, be all that you could be. But when you looked at your, at your teacher in the way that a student should look to the guru, practicing as I have just suggested, seeing the faults of cyclic existence, etc., etc., seeing that, the, that the, this is the door of liberation, and hearing the truth and letting yourself hear something about your own nature, letting yourself trust and rely on that in order to awaken to your own nature, then you have once again looked in the mirror. But this time you have seen your true face. And that's why we practice devotion. It isn't a personality cult and it isn't to make the teacher feel good. It's so that you have a way in this world, now, while delusion is still in the mind, while you have not yet awakened, you have a way to see your true face. Because your true face is that which calls you now. It is your true face which asks you to give rise to the bodhicitta. It is your true face which guides you on the path in order to awaken to your own true nature. It is your true face which will dispel contrivance. It is your true face which will dispel duality. Therefore, it is your true face that teaches you now. And so we understand our teacher to be our own nature, indistinguishable from us. And the game that you play when you think of, oh, I'm over here and I'm going to collect this teacher and that teacher and I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing with my teacher and I'll impress her this way or that way or the other way. Because then you're making yourself separate and frankly, I don't see the difference. Try to understand that upon meeting the guru, you have met your own true face. Upon allowing the guru to speak to your heart, you have awakened to your own true face and have begun that path of awakening to your own true face. On trusting the teacher, when the teacher gives to you the Buddhist teaching called the Dharma and helps you to become part of the Sangha, on trusting that this is good, on trusting that this is the method, on allowing that to influence you rather than you influencing yourself. This is you seeing your own true face finally and completely. So what you're practicing to do now is not to love somebody that you never loved before. It isn't about, oh, I am so-and-so, so and, and I love her, so-and-so. It, it isn't like that. It isn't even a people thing. Can you understand? It's totally and completely about awakening. We see the teacher 
and we awaken to our own true nature, that is your voice. Don't make a difference when there is none. That is your face. Don't make a difference when there is none. If you were to see yourself somehow, see yourself, well, this wouldn't work at all. If you were to somehow have the view of the mind of enlightenment, from the perspective of enlightenment, there is no place that you end and I begin. There is no place that I end and my teachers begin. There is one nature. Learn to hear the voice. That is devotion. And remember that it's not for the teacher. It's for you. It is your path and your method. And why devotion is so extremely important in this time, in this day, is because of the contracted nature of Kali Yuga, like wool that has been shrunk. The easiest way, because of the peculiarities of this time, the easiest way to look the greatest distance is to look immediately into the face and see one's own nature. Because of the way Kali Yuga works, because duality is so inherent in Kali Yuga, to look at the face of one's guru and to be open and receptive to that, to see that that is the door of liberation, causes you to see yourself, to see your true nature, your true face. And it is the quickest way to do that. So I have explained this to you in a very non-traditional way, yet this is a very non, very, absolutely very traditional teaching. But I've explained it in a way that Westerners can understand. Because we do have a particular problem. We do have a particular addiction. And that addiction is to materialism. And the perceptual process that comes with materialism is causing you to be extremely limited on the path. And so, understanding this, perhaps you are able then to examine through self-honesty, looking at your own perception. How do you think? How do you feel? What have you done? How have you approached, approached spirituality? And maybe, as you approach the path, and the very next time that you come, it might be a little bit differently than it was the last time. Don't be afraid of change. You are here to change. The part of you that's afraid of change, particularly the kind of change that is necessary, is the part of you that's dressing up in your mommy and daddy's clothing. That's the part of you that wants to continue and be bigger and better and more firm in exactly the way you are. But that is because you don't know what you are. You had no idea. If only you could see how futile that perspective actually is. And understand how precious is every moment of change that you experience. Even though change is a hardship and it's unsettling, and, and for many people it is the most difficult thing of all, because we prize our personality so much. We think, that's the way I am, and I have to be the way I am. That's just how it is. We prize that so much. If only we could see how precious is every moment. 
that that very idea begins to break down. How precious. Because every time that self-image breaks down, we move closer to the true awareness of what we actually are, our true nature, free of such contrivance. So thank you very much for coming today. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.